0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace. What is Squarespace? Squarespace is an all in one platform that makes it simple for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Do you need a website? Do you want to make your existing website better? Squarespace is the solution. At Squarespace, you'll find a tremendous array of beautiful, customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from and a variety of style options available so you can make your site look exactly how you want it to look. The best thing is Squarespace is easy to use. You do not need to be a technology genius to use this service. It's a service for people like me. I'm no technology genius. Look at me. I don't even know how to spell HTML. So if you go to Squarespace and you get started and for some reason you need a little help, no problem at all. Squarespace has an amazing support team at the ready, available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Packages start at just eight bucks a month and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your website so your content will always look great on every device every single time so what do you say you guys i think it's time to do this start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website visit squarespace.com and when you sign up at squarespace be sure to use the offer code other eight again that offer code is other eight you do that you get 10 percent off and it's a great way to show your support for this program. So come on, ladies and gentlemen, Squarespace.com. Go there, do it. It's a terrific deal, available right now, and it's an excellent way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God.
1: You are not alone
0: just one person at just one time right. okay right. everybody here we go again this is it this is other people this is part of your daily media diet this is hopefully addictive in a largely benign way thanks for being here my name is brad listy i'm in los angeles california uh, in the home office where i am currently seated in full lotus position actually that's not true roy Keezy is the guest He is the critically acclaimed author of several books, and he's got a new story collection out called Any Deadly Thing, and that is available now from the good people at DeZank Books. We're going to get there in just a moment, but first I wanted to read a letter from a listener named Bill who says, Dear Brad, I listened to your podcast to hear about writing. There are plenty of other forums where I could go to hear about, for example, Molly Ringwald's early days as a child actress and gushing over the amazing talent of John Hughes, that is what I would expect to get in every other interview of Molly Ringwald. Molly herself even seemed a bit annoyed when two-thirds of the way through the podcast, she said something like, We should probably talk about the writing at some point, right? It's your podcast, Brad. Your hard work and effort makes it happen, not ours. If you find it more entertaining to talk about people's childhoods, uh, or mental health issues, or dominatrix skills, or whatever, then go for it with the general media as an indicator there is probably a bigger audience for that kind of voyeurism than for the kind that examines why and how people write and live life as a writer it isn't wrong it's just different and not what i want to listen to or i'd already be listening to any of the dozens of interview forums that do that as a fan and supporter i've done an itunes review i'm a tnb book club subscriber and a paypal supporter i hope you steer the balance back towards writing as you did in episode 204 Best, Bill. So, thank you, Bill. And and first of all, thank you very much for your kind support across the board. I really appreciate that. And uh, I think you're right, broadly speaking. I, I think that the bulk of the interviews should focus on uh, the writing, somehow. But, uh, you know, there are going to be divergences. Sometimes things get off track. And uh, I'm uh, I'm of the belief that When things do start to digress You sort of have to follow that uh, To see where it goes And sometimes it doesn't go anywhere (laughs) Or it doesn't go anywhere interesting In which case it's my job as the host To reel it in and to reorient the conversation But uh, sometimes these digressions Lead to compelling places And uh, this I think is where the show Gets a lot of its most interesting And unexpected moments so you know, I I don't mean to over equivocate, but the reality I think is that it's a balancing act, and it's my job uh, to perform that act. And it's interesting that you bring up the Molly Ringwald episode because I really struggled with that one. Meaning, like, how much do I ask her about her acting career? And it did occur to me that maybe I should focus exclusively on her writing, but. Uh, then I feared that the opposite backlash would, would happen and people would be on my case for uh, failing to ask her about John Hughes and so on. So uh, I guess this is a way of saying that uh, my thought process, both prior to and during interviews is largely centered on trying to anticipate the mental experience of my show by listeners, if that makes sense. And uh, with Molly, you know, she was a unique guest because she's famous and, uh, most people have a pretty defined frame of reference for her prior to her coming on the show. And I guess I just felt in the end that most of my listeners would want to hear her talk about her acting career in addition to the writing. And we did cover both, but you know, maybe I overdid it on the acting stuff. And, uh, if that's the case, you know, it, please know it, I didn't do it out of some sort of sensationalist impulse. I was just trying to, uh, ask questions that I felt like listeners would, you know, want to hear the answers to. And to be frank, that's sort of the problem with fame related stuff. It's such an elephant in the room and it's, it's a third party thing. It's not Molly's fault. It's just there. It's like this other entity and it's hard to ignore it. Like, can you imagine if I interviewed Molly Ringwald for an hour and didn't spend quality time talking to her about her acting life? Like to me, that would just, uh, that would seem weird. So, uh, I, you know, just to finish up, I think you have a really good point, Bill, and it's definitely one that I'm sensitive to. And, uh, going forward, I'm definitely going to try to keep the bulk of the focus on writing related stuff. But, uh, at the same time, I do reserve the right to go off topic or to veer off in unexpected directions, uh, as I did well with Molly. I don't, I don't think it's that unexpected to talk about acting, but with a, with a guest like Gregory Sherl to point out a recent example. And, you know, let's face it. A lot of things qualify as being quote writing related. I think a discussion on acting can be considered writing related Uh, I think conversations on things like travel or uh, childhood trauma or sexual behavior or mental illness, all of these things seem relevant to me uh, in the context of the writing life. And frankly, they're a lot more interesting to me a lot of the time than hearing about more conventional writerly things. So again, you know, it's a balance. It's a balance. So thanks again, Bill. I really appreciate it. I'm going to do uh, one quick voicemail, and then we're going to get going with the main event. This one came in just yesterday, uh, I believe, from a listener named Ben. (laughs) Let me tell y'all,
1: but my man, Brad Listy, listen every night, he's a sandman, twist me, a gram in that spliff, understand it, uplifts me, monologue pauses like a lozenge, and just sticky, silken tone makes me moan for a quickie, theater of the mind, his design's doing rapture, but eager to my line, max mill was lambaster, what a bitter idiot, his trite spite, how I pity it, dude needs to come the fuck down, before he throws another shitty fit, Brad, you're my boy, lit game, Mark Maron, self-employed shooting through the airwaves like a flare gun, and he anybody wants to leave a slick of voicemail at dareham oh, I just rapped about Brad
0: listy what was I thinking oh my god <laughs> uh, I I think that's the winner so far in the uh, unofficial voicemail contest I don't even know what to say about that it's almost, it's almost certainly the first time anyone's ever rapped about me or written anything uh, poetic about me at all that I know of. And I got to say, it's, uh, it's really flattering. <laughs> I'm genuinely flattered. Like, you know how sometimes people uh, will write uh, a poem for uh, the object of their affection? It's like a romantic gesture happens in movies uh, sometimes or I don't know, you know like what what i what I mean to say is that I think this voicemail has forced me to conclude that uh, this is an effective technique. I believe i've had an epiphany here <laughs> uh, like whereas I think i uh, I used to feel that this sort of thing was uh, perhaps a little absurd. Uh, I now believe that it's uh very effective like i'm blushing a little bit right now (laughs) i don't know how to deal with this this rapping i feel touched by it so uh, with this in mind if anyone else out there would like to try and compete with uh, ben i would welcome your attempts to uh, rap about uh, me and or the podcast and uh, if you would like to do that and share it publicly i would be obliged So, uh, thank you, Ben, for, uh, comparing me to a flare gun. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career It's also The Funniest by a Country Mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Roy Kesey. Uh, very happy to have him here. Roy uh, has been on my internet radar for a long time, he is a writer. That other writers tend to know about and have great admiration for and it's uh it's really fun to get a chance to finally talk with him his latest story collection once again is called any deadly thing and it is available now from desank books so here he is folks this is roy kesey the author of any deadly thing
1: i am right now in the basement of our house in bethesda maryland uh there's a There's like a playroom kind of beside me with the television and the Wii for the kids and my son's drum set. And then my half of it is uh, some huge closet storage type thing and a bunch of bookshelves. And I really should put something on the walls at some point, but for now it's mostly beige.
0: It takes a while, you know? I mean, like, and you, I feel like you have this like really peripatetic existence. Like, I know, I internet know you, and so I've seen you like moving around the globe for the past decade. And, now you're in Maryland, so, I, you know, how long have you been there?
1: Well, see, that would be awesome if it was a, a valid excuse, but I, I'm not sure that it is. We've been here more than a year, and I just, aside from uh, one like, political department's of Peru map, I, haven't, I just haven't bothered.
0: Well, you know, we've lived in our place for over five years, or almost five years, and we still have, like, entire walls that have not been covered. And I think part of it for me is that I, I don't feel like this is, this is it. I feel like this is kind of a temporary place. Right, and it's hard to get invested in like interior design when you feel like you might be moving or you have that in your brain.
1: Right, right. Well, I think part of it, and these two phenomena sort of work work well together. Um, we're really, really, you know, that thing where people come over to your house or your apartment and you give them the tour. I don't think I've ever done that, and it would never occur to me, and unless like someone gave me a cue card saying to do it, it, it just it just doesn't happen. Like we're in the kitchen or we're in the living room, or whatever, and like beyond that, it wouldn't it wouldn't occur to me to take people down into the bowels of the house, and so. Uh, you know, that's, I, I don't feel like I have to decorate down here because, you know, I'm the only, me and the dog, we're the only people who ever see
0: it. <laughs> well, and like my place just isn't that cool. Like it's just, not, <laughs> it's not the kind of place that people want to tour.
1: <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, ours is a pretty normal house. There's nothing particularly special about the house except, uh, it's got that open kitchen plan. So you can kind of see from the front door all the way through what would be like living room, kitchen, dining room. Thing with a bunch of uh, bay windows in the back. So it ends up feeling bigger than it is, and that's kind of cool. That's new for us, and it's fun to be sort of fiddling around in the kitchen, you know, finishing up whatever when friends get here.
0: Well, and, and are you guys, like, locked into Maryland for a while? Because, I mean, you've lived in South America. You've lived in Asia. Uh, what what t- Talk about that. Like, why, why have you lived in all these places, and, like, why are you now in Maryland?
1: Well, I, I started moving around, I guess, just because I got bored quickly, uh, which is not a good thing. That's not a good reason to be moving around. But uh, so that was, you know, I was a year here, two years there, a year here for, uh, for quite a while, starting at the beginning of college. And there were some other factors in there as well, but that's, that was just kind of my life. And then, uh, I met my wife down in Peru and we got married and she entered the Peruvian diplomatic corps. And so that's, what's taken us, uh, to most of the places that we've been since then. Uh, her first posting was to Beijing. She was at the Peruvian embassy there. And so we were there for five years until the week before the Olympics, which we try to tell ourselves was a good decision instead of like a crap decision. Uh, that it turned, it would have been fun. I think to stick around, my friends, who did stick around, and had a great time. Um, and then let's see. Then we were in Syracuse for a year, so that she could do a, a master's in public administration there uh, at, at Syracuse University. And then back to Peru, because the, the whole deal is kind of five and three. You're five years abroad meaning outside of Peru, and then three years in Lima working back at the foreign ministry there, uh, five abroad, three home, and so on until you die, I guess. Uh, So we're here. She's right now. She's posted to the OAS, the Organization of American States, which is like uh, kind of a mini UN just for the Americas. Uh, It coordinates policy and Uh, whatnot for for all the countries from canada down to chile i guess
0: okay so everywhere you go like you're just you're writing fiction she's working in the in the diplomatic or for the diplomatic corps uh of peru and then you're 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 going along in like these places and like are you finding like a day job in these places are you just able to work on writing and focus on that
1: well, it kind of depends. When we were in China, my idea was that for the first time in my life, I wouldn't, you know, f- financially, we were in a position that I wouldn't have to have a full-time job. I would be able to just write. And I ended up sort of talking to myself even more than usual and sort of walking around with pencils sticking out of my ears. And my wife said, we got to get you out of the house. And so I, I did go back and do some some teaching at the university there. And uh, But it's a, it's just a question of finding the right pace and the right mix of stuff. I'm not working outside of the I also I'm also a translator and so right now that's my big project is a a novel that I'm that I'm translating um
0: Wait what languages do you speak you mean obviously um, Spanish
1: Yes, but this is most of my translation is from Spanish to English, and that's what this project is.
0: Okay,
1: uh, and then I also do a little bit of translation from French, which is more work for me because it's been a long time since I've spoken French on a regular basis. But you know, enough of it's still there that I can I can still do the work. Um, and that's you know that's about it. We had classes, Mandarin classes, uh, three days a week were two hours at a stretch, so six hours a week for almost the entire five years we were there, and that got us to a level of like really solid mediocrity in the language it was It was much harder going uh, for me in, in Mandarin than it was in, in French or Spanish for fairly obvious reasons i guess
0: well yeah i mean I, um, look, at, I look at like chinese uh, any of the like the Asian languages were like the just, to, just the characters, just the drawing involved. It just seems <laughs> it seems very intensive, you know? I don't know. Uh,
1: it is. No, you're right. You're right. And it's funny that you would say drawing because that's exactly the way that I approached it and is exactly the wrong way to go about it. I mean, you know, if you consider it writing, uh, I think that's, that's a key sort of point of access to it. Whereas because, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure this is the only reason, but partly because my handwriting, even in English, is so bad, I had to really slow down to make the characters look the way they were supposed to, to make them legible to anybody else. Right. And, uh, and at one point our teacher was just watching me, uh, labor through a character and she said, you know, your characters are, are really cute. like a <laughs> kindergartner's She said, that's what actually, we should like a kindergartner's well, uh,
0: that's going to, that's yeah. going to, that's going to instill you with confidence. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. But the other thing, the other part of that was, so my wife it, writes and reads, um, better than I do. But because, partly because I was out and about more, you know, I was the one going to the supermarket. I was the one dealing with, you know, whatever activities for the kids or whatever. Um, I spoke quite a bit more than she did because, you know, her contact with the Chinese government was mostly in Spanish, they had, or in English. And uh, whereas my, you know, my contact with the Chinese in, in, in the day-to-day world was was almost all in Chinese and so I got to practice more and also I think I'm just I'm more willing to make mistakes she she likes everything to be right and I'm willing for it to be close enough uh, you know in, in terms of day-to-day conversations
0: well so I mean this like but this strikes me as like kind of like a I don't know it's just this is a lot more fascinating than my existence you've gotten to live all over the world <laughs> in these different places you're speaking four languages uh, I imagine your kids are what like bilingual trilingual
1: Uh, yeah, we had, you know what, we had them up to four for a while in, uh, in China because they were going to the French school. Uh Um, but they were, they were still pretty small there, but they, that both, uh, Chinese and the French started to fall away. Uh, as soon as we moved to Syracuse, where we didn't have a whole lot of ways of practicing either of those. And, so when we moved back to Peru, we had the idea that we were going to put them in a French school, and then it turned out that that, lost, that, that that year in Syracuse was going to be a totally lost year for them. It wasn't going to count at all for their schooling, and we couldn't talk them out of it, even you know they take exams or whatever. So we bailed on that idea, and uh, you know they were in a Spanish-speaking school for those three years in Peru, but now in Bethesda, they have, you know, they, the, the public schools in Montgomery County are pretty great and they have these, they have language programs that are pretty sophisticated. And so they're both taking, uh, now that they're both at the middle school, they're both taking Mandarin classes. Wow. And so they're back learning to read and write and, you know, remembering what they had before. And it's, it's cool.
0: Wow. So I mean, like all of this travel, all of this, uh, expatriated existence, how do you think it has affected your fiction? Oh. Like, has it affected, I mean, it has to have had some kind of impact on your self-perception and, uh, you know, the things that you've seen have, have to have bled into the stories that you tell and, and whatnot. But, like, is there something you can point to specifically that you think has happened as a result of, of kind of living, um, I don't know, it's just a stranger in a strange land?
1: I I would feel pretty ridiculous denying that. I think there's got to be, there's got to be stuff in the work, uh, you know, wherever you live, whatever your life consists of is going to bleed up into the work. I, I believe that really strongly. I don't see how it could be any other way. And so, you know, even, even if you live in one county all your life and, and never leave your house that, you know, that's what's going to manifest that your work is going to smell like that. And so, Mine has, I guess, different smells coming from different these different <laughs> places, and uh, well, I mean, like even in a really literal sense, this is an example I've I've used before. But uh, you know, you, you're, you when when we when we were in China, our sweat smelled like peanut oil. You know, it was just it came out literally what you were putting in comes out, and so the same thing is happening to your brain, and so I you know I was, I guess, gaining access to other languages and thus other ways of thinking about language i was getting access to other cultures and other ways of thinking about sort of how to be alive in the in the human world um, and so and all of those things were fun as a person and they and they feed into the work
0: i'm sure I mean, do you think ways that do, do you think it gives it an, does it do you think it gives your work a depth That I mean, because this is the thing. Like, you have these these writers who like never leave, like you say, their home county. They they just have a place, and they sort of know that place and stake out that territory and achieve like this great depth by by staying still. Um, But then there's a part of me that thinks like, wow, that's sort of a, a really limited approach. Like by going out and immersing yourself in all these different cultures and having all these different experiences and having access to all these different languages, like. Do you think that gives your work an advantage over people who are uh locked into one location primarily
1: I think it I think it would allow me to be strong in other areas um, I don't like talking overall an advantage of one body of work over another that that makes me a little bit uncomfortable right. um, partly because I'm jealous or or uh, you know, I look at the depth that somebody can achieve working over one plot of ground, uh, whether it's, you know, Faulkner or Flannery O'Connor, you know, whoever. Um, I, I see that, I see the advantages that that brings and I think, Man, I wish I had that. I wish I could, but the but the only way to do that is the only way to get that is to not move around and not and I'm you know for for reasons of uh, personality and now you know my wife's profession that's we we're, we're going to be moving around and and I was thrilled when I realized that that's what our life was going to be that our life was going to be the sort of continuation of the of the uh the skittering around that I'd been doing for a decade before we met so um I don't i think it I think it. Allows me to be good at one – I mean, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll have the opportunity if everything else goes right and I put in the work, I'll, I'll have the opportunity to to do a certain kind of thing, uh, hopefully well. Um, and it will be a different thing than what those other people are doing. I, You know, I, I it's just different. I don't think – I don't – you know, I don't, I'm not really comfortable talking about Advantage.
0: Okay. And then what about um, when you were younger, you know, prior to – Meeting your wife and and sort of having all these different international experiences in the context of her work and whatnot. Um, Like, were you a young person who, uh, as a young reader, romanticized the expatriate novel? Like, was that something that really appealed to you? And is that part of what gave you the travel bug as a young person? You know,
1: maybe, maybe. I'd never really thought about it in that in those terms before, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was true. Um, I, I like uh, lots of people, I did tons and tons of reading and wore out a couple of uh, library cards there at the in the public library, the little town that I grew up in. Um, so I got to go a lot of places in uh, books that we didn't get to go, uh, you know, as a, as a kid or as a family, whatever. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it, it was, everything in the town was bikeable and we were just, we were allowed to just go from, you know, eight, nine years old. It was okay for me to, you know, say I'll be back and get on my bike and be gone for four or five or six hours we're in a way that's we're... a little bit hard to underst- to 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 imagine now. Uh, a town called Ukiah in Northern California, okay, uh, yeah. a couple hours north of San Francisco. Okay. Um, back then it was I don't know ten, eleven thousand people and and very rural and and uh, there were there are, there still are a lot of big parks there that you could just go up and I'd you know I'd meet a friend there and we'd just go you know chase quail around for four hours or whatever.
0: Wow. No, is that, it's not coastal, Ukiah.
1: No, it's, it's a ways from the coast. It's probably an hour. It's not very far uh, as the seagull flies, but it's probably an hour uh, from the coast. It's just that, those curvy little roads to get over to the coast.
0: So you, I mean, so you basically had like a country childhood. It sounds sort of idyllic small
1: town, small town, definitely. And it, I mean, it was in retrospect, we were, we were all really ready to leave, you know, you hit 17 and, and, you know, I moved, I moved across the country and I moved as far away as I could get without leaving the country. And, and, uh, and that was just cause I was ready to be somewhere that wasn't a small town, but, uh, where did but, you go? yeah, uh, Georgetown here in DC. Oh,
0: okay. So you went to Georgetown for college?
1: Well, I started there. I started there. Um, it's a the reasons I left, it's it's a long, it's a fun story, but it's a long story. Um, but so I was there for, for two years and then dropped out and, uh, and ended up going to a couple of other places to finish up.
0: Okay. So why did you drop out? Can you give a short (laughs) short version? (laughs)
1: Um, I'm not sure there's a short version, but I'll give it a shot. Um, so I was back, back in the day, uh, financial aid didn't work the way it does now. There was no, uh, it, it all depended on your your parents' income, and so to get, uh, we didn't, we you know, sort of uh, middle, small town middle class, and so no way to pay for a private university, you know, by any stretch, and but you know, but making enough money that you, we weren't going to get financial aid, and so uh, the way that the way that it worked was, I got a job uh, very through a series of very very fortunate circumstances and lucky accidents, I ended up meeting. Uh, my congressman, Doug Bosco, 1st uh, District there in California and, and he gave me a job, a paying job as a legislative aide uh, there in his office and so I was working for him full-time while I was going to school and that worked out really well the first year. While I had, uh, you know, I had some small scholarships that I'd won that, you know, that sort of took me over the top. And then the second year, the problem was that I didn't have those small scholarships anymore. And so I was going to be making just barely enough, like not enough to ever go out or do anything uh, beyond school. And that didn't seem like fun. So. Uh, my dad and I, I told you it's a long story, right? My dad and I, <laughs> <laughs> for the, for the six or eight years before that, he had decided that it would be fun when I was about 10, if we invested in the stock market together. And so he gave me a hundred dollars and he took $200 of his own and we pooled it. And, um, and just started buying and selling penny stocks on my say, so like I would bicycle down to the public library, read the wall street journal, draw my little charts I was 10 or 11 when this started. And, uh, uh, you know, and decide when to when to buy and sell, and and so I thought I knew the rhythms. I thought I knew how you how you went about that, and so when I, you know sophomore year is coming up at Georgetown, and uh, I needed some extra cash, and so instead of paying <laughs> instead of paying for my education like a like a reasonable citizen, I deferred payment and put all of Georgetown's money in the stock market, <laughs> and lost it all, lost it all in about ninety minutes. Oh. On Black Monday, nineteen eighty-seven, nobody else—nobody else remembers that. But it was, uh, yeah, it was—it was—it was, was a bad afternoon for me, and worse for other people. Obviously, I mean, not, uh, other people had much worse things happen to them uh, as a result of that day. But uh, it was—it was fairly nerve-wracking uh, for a nineteen-year-old who just lost all of Georgetown's money. <laughs> and um, so that, and a few other circumstances, conspired to. Uh, to chase me out of out of washington dc
0: okay and
1: so so i just bailed i just hitchhiked across the country for a couple months and went up to alaska and messed
0: around for a while wow okay so did you did you go to georgetown with any kind of like uh... political ambitions like that seems like a school that you would go to if you had some sort of fascination with politics and well
1: i did i did and do still i am fascinated by it and uh... spend way too much time reading about it and thinking about it and getting angry about it and um... Uh yeah. I mean uh, I not I well did I have political ambitions back then? Maybe, but they were sort of vague and it, i would I, I can't imagine ever running for office now. I but uh back then, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But bailing on it, you know, once I'd learned that that uh, poet was an actual job that seemed much cooler to me
0: <laughs> well you know it's funny that you say that like that you spend too much time thinking about it and getting angry about it and all that because i i have the same bug and i question myself like i think like you know like, why am i reading about why am i so fascinated with these people and why do i i mean i, I guess there could be something healthy about wanting to know how the the government of your country works. You know? <laughs> but I think you can also get caught up in it in a way that's really toxic. And so it's like I think it's trying to find a balance between the two.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly the way I feel. I mean I think I don't know <laughs> I don't know how healthy it is exactly knowing how things work. I think it can be fantastically depressing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are some there are some really smart people there and there are people who are really trying to do good work on both sides of the aisle and you know it's it's good that they're there and it's it's a shame there aren't more of
0: them. Yeah, I mean, did you did you get any special insight working like working in an office for a congressman? Like, did you see anything that like I don't know illuminated the the process or the way that the machine works by being there?
1: Um, a little bit. I, I you know I was I was young. I didn't I didn't have a sense of uh, of the complexity of it. One thing that I do remember, I, I a friend of mine uh, who was who was also young but a little older than I was, who worked in the office and a brilliant guy. Uh, named Jason Lyles. He, uh, he shepherded me a little bit while I was there in the office and, and you know, tried to keep me out of trouble. And uh, one of the things that I remember, I don't remember if I came to it through him or uh, probably, uh, was just a sense of how personal everything was, that, you know, you could have somebody working on a highway bill trying to keep, you know, fighting to keep speed limits low in a sense that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense given the rest of his, you know, his sort of political opinions or whatever. And, and then you find out that it's because he lost a daughter in a car accident or whatever, you know, there's, there's, there's backstory. And sometimes it's, you know, it, it verges on corruption. And sometimes it's just a personal thing that happened. And I think a lot of, uh, positions uh, come out of that. They're, they're born in the personal and that, that I don't know. That was kind of refreshing to me and useful to me as a way of thinking about how people come to their political
0: positions. Sure, sure. And then uh, what about like this, you know, when you eventually left Georgetown and went off on this hitchhiking thing, that sounds like a very writerly thing to do. Like had you made the shift internally um, and decided that this was going to be what you pursued like prior to making that leap? Or was that something that you discovered and and really became uh, serious about after that happened?
1: I think it was all kind of mixed together. I'm not entirely sure of the of the timeline of it. Um, but I knew let's see. When I got to, part of the small town thing is that I'd never, I did not know that there was such a thing as a literary magazine. I had never seen one uh, until I got to Georgetown. I'm not sure I'd ever been in an art museum. I'd certainly never heard uh, highbrow music live before. You know, there were a lot of experiences that I came to for the first time here in D.C. And, um, And one of those things was realizing that Poetry could be written by someone who is still alive, right? They were <laughs> uh, all the ones I'd ever heard of, and certainly all the ones I'd ever read were dead, and most of them uh, long since dead. So, uh, you know, finding out that that this thing that had me writing these terrible, terrible poems was a thing that existed in lots of other people, and and that there was this whole uh, sort of you know industry around it, and and that that it was a thing that could happen. It could be your life. This this whatever drive that I had. Uh, could manifest itself in in ways that w- had something to do with the rest of my life, and so that was that was fascinating to me. And once I realized that, and that you know I had a shot at becoming part of it, that was that was just that was revolutionary for me. That was amazing. And so that realization is happening at the same time as everything else, same semester anyway, as all the other mess, the the losing the money and and making the decision to leave.
0: So were you like what kind of what kind of mindset were you in and and you know when you talked earlier about your experience at Georgetown, it seems like you were pretty um you, you were really busy you were working a full time job <laughs> going to school, so you weren't did you have like a wild streak were you, you doing crazy things at that age, or were you pretty studious and then then you had this kind of like uh, financial cataclysm
1: <laughs> yeah on, on
0: Black Monday, like when you left to go hitchhiking. Were you in a? Were you rattled, or were you like, "This is cool. I'm going to go have an adventure and see what's next"?
1: Well, I was. I was rattled in the sense that you know I'd failed at something. I'd failed to. Uh, you know to 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 make this work. I'd had this plan and it had not come together, and so that was you know that was unfortunate. That rattled me just a little bit. But on the other hand, you know, I'd, I'd come to the realization that there were all these other possibilities, one of which was hitchhiking 10,000 miles in a summer just because you wanted to. And I, literally, I mean, I was going to leave with, I had like $40. I mean, I, that's how I was going to do it. I had a, I had a map and forty dollars and the two sets of like surgeon scrubs. I don't remember why that was so important to me at the time, but I had those and um, <laughs> because that's I you, guess because they dried easy
0: that's who you want <laughs> that's who you want to pick up on the side of the road is a guy in surgeon scrubs. <laughs>
1: right right? Why did I think that would be a good <laughs> idea? I don't remember the hitchhiking surgeon anyway um, uh, so yeah, so I, that's how I was going to do it and then my first stop was uh, at my cousin's house. And he would, he just wouldn't let that happen. He's like, look, you got, you have to at least, at least take, well, he gave me $200, which now that I think about it, I still haven't paid him back for <laughs> um, Uh. So, you know, just to, just so that I would be able to get something to eat if it was ab- an absolute emergency. And it worked out, I mean, with that and the other thing that I was doing, the other thing that was interesting to me was that I'd come to the, the I'd, I'd been thinking a lot about, uh, you know, how I'd. Changed and the sort of the conscious changes that I'd made and the potential for change that happens when you just pick up sticks when you move to somewhere completely other and nobody knows you and, and the, the sort of identity building that can take place and what I and I also knew that that comes that there's this weird conflict when you do that when you build a new identity and then you go home right the, obviously these aren't particularly original thoughts but they were they were new to me and so I wanted to see my friends the friends that I'd made at Georgetown. In their in their home environment, I wanted to see how they lived amongst their friends and and with their families and with you know I wanted to know what their house looked like and so it was basically just nosiness I guess, um, and so yeah I went down uh, down the coast all the way to Miami and then up to New Orleans and Kansas City and Denver and back and forth a little bit in Montana and,
0: and hitchhiking and- everywhere. Yep, hitchhiking everywhere. Any 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 like dangerous rides or you know times when you felt unsafe?
1: Well, uh, yeah, a couple. But I I learned fairly early that it was okay to say no. You know, I had where was this? This would have been in Florida, coming back up after Miami. Uh, these you know guys, two guys in a uh, sports car. Stopped and there was, you know, first of all, there wasn't space; there was nowhere for anybody else to sit. Second of all, they were too high to talk. (laughs) And so, I, you know, I'm standing on a, I'm standing on an on ramp that says to get on the highway going. West and I said, "Oh, you guys going west? Sorry, I'm going east. Thanks." And just step back, and they nodded and waved and drove off. Right. Um, so you know, realizing that that was an okay thing to do, that that was you know that that was in your interest sometimes, uh, helped. Uh, but I but I didn't have any I didn't have any bad stories. I, I there were there were I got in a couple of times with people who shouldn't have been driving. But uh, but aside from that, nobody really messed with me. In spite of the fact that I was you know I slept under a bridge or two and camped out in back of. Uh, of a gas station or two. And I can remember one time I found this, this stretch of uh, what do you call it? artificial turf, and astroturf uh, behind a, like a Motel 6 or something. And so I just found a dark corner behind a, one of their little plastic trees. This was outside of Denver somewhere. And, uh, and after a while, the manager came out, and I thought she was going to chase me away. And she said, hey, we've got a room with a sink that doesn't work, so nobody can sleep in there. So if you want to sleep in there, that would be cool. I mean, you know, I had I had things like that happen a couple of times,
0: Um, so it was good. Yeah, it was good. Wow. And so, were you writing during this time?
1: I was just keeping a journal, which is probably still somewhere, but I haven't seen it. And I, I'm I'm like looking through my closet now. Now I don't I, I I don't know where it is, but it's 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 around somewhere.
0: Okay. And so, uh, then what? So, like, you're doing all this, or so your parent uh, your 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 parents are obviously aware of the fact that you're hitchhiking all over the country. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think. I mean, I. I hope at least I don't really remember this, but I hope that I was a good enough son to sort of call them from each house. Obviously this is long before cell phones, but I hope I was a good enough son to call them from each, you know, from each friend's house. And I think I did most of the time. So, you know, they heard from me every week or so. And, um, yeah. And then I got, so I got, yeah, I got home. I was there for a little while. I went down and I was in, working for a company that planted trees. I don't know what the laws are like now, but back then if, uh, if a public company messed up public land, they had to fix it in terms of replanting the, the trees and the bushes and the, you know, whatever, what department of defense built a new parking lot, they have to reforest around it. And, um, so I was doing that for a little while down South, uh, and then met some a couple of people that I was working with there said that Alaska was cool and they'd made a lot of money, so I went up to Alaska.
0: Did you work in the fishing, and, you, like on a fishing Yeah.
1: Route? Yeah, I was in the I was in the canneries for a little while one of the one of the freezer units for a while and then um got on with a with a troller, not one of the big saners with the big nets. This guy had uh, what was his name? Bob Earl. Bob Earl had a troller, and so there, you know, you're he's got these sort of cannonballs on metal cables, and you drop them, and they have uh, regular fishing line clipped on at every, you know, whatever two meters or whatever it was, uh, with lures on them, and uh, and then you you have hydraulics that bring them up, and and uh, as I remember, he only once had to scream at me, "Are you this dangerous in a
0: library?" Yeah. Well, those—it's yeah. a lot of people. I mean, people lose their lives on those boats. It's a dangerous line of work.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the only way to get a job. Actually, is when somebody does. It was—it uh, was a pretty competitive place. This was a, this was in Ketchikan. This wasn't all the way up north and like the the most dangerous catch people. Um, it was a little a little lower key than that, but still pretty intense. It was a good wow. summer.
0: Wow. Okay. So, uh, where did you ultimately? Did you you did finish school?
1: Yeah, I went uh, I went to Washington College, which is out here in, in Chesterton, Maryland, on the on the, uh, uh, the eastern shore of Maryland. Beautiful, beautiful little liberal arts school. And uh, so I was there for a semester, and then through them got a, a one-year scholarship to uh, Manchester College at, at Oxford in England. And so I went and finished uh, philosophy there and then came back and did a just finished an English a BA in English at uh, at Washington College.
0: Oh wow, okay. So you you spent a year at Oxford? Mm-hmm. How was that? Spectacular.
1: It yeah. was it was amazing. Yeah. I it was it was kind of I felt like, you know, eight hundred years ago they designed this system just for me. <laughs> uh it was that, you know, it's I, I it's it's very different. They have what's called a tutorial system and so instead of being in classes with, you know, twenty or twenty five or thirty other students, it's just you, maybe one other student and the tutor, which anywhere else would be called a professor. And you're uh you know, you're meeting. You only instead of four classes a semester, you have one class per trimester. And instead of meeting two or three times a week, you meet once a week. And it's like I said, it's just you and the and the professor, or maybe maybe two of you. And so, uh, it's mostly just reading. It's mostly just reading and thinking about stuff. And then you write an essay a week or whatever, and and show up and read it out loud to your tutor. And these, this was all new to me, but it was it was spectacular. It was exactly the way that I uh, best, I think. Wow. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a really wonderful year.
0: Okay. So when you graduated, how old were you? Like mid twenties or early twenties? No, I was just a year
1: older than everybody else. I think I just, I'd lost, uh, I only lost a semester.
0: Okay. And then you, think, from yeah. there, like after graduation launched into like what a, you said like a decade of, of skittering around. I think that might be a direct quote.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, give or take. I, I went from there. I uh, got a job, again, through, through people at Washington College who, who have looked out for me ever since and still are. Um, uh, I, I got a job at the University of Paris. Uh, at, uh, the University of Paris has a bunch of different campuses, so we were at uh, the 12th in Cate, up north. And so I was teaching a bunch of things up there for them. I taught... Um,
0: Wait, the University of Paris, France? Yes. So you went. You moved to Paris. Yes, moved to Paris. Okay. Wow, that's a. Good and
1: job. yeah, it was it was a good gig. Uh, I was there for two years, and it was yeah, it was it was wonderful. Um, and I got I got really lucky. Well, I, I got lucky in a lot of senses. The the department head, uh, a guy named Georges Bocquillon, was terrific. He um he took he took good care of us, and uh, and got me some some courses that I probably wouldn't have been able to teach otherwise. I ended up teaching a sort of history of education course in the master's program, uh, that second year. And I got to teach a, a literature course or two, some sort of American Civ courses. And then, uh, it, also within the EFL program, uh, some, you know, phonetics and whatever else.
0: Okay. So, so it was a good gig. And, and are you writing fiction in Paris, like doing that thing?
1: That is where I switched over from writing terrible poems to writing, Terrible stories, <laughs> um, because I didn't know how to do either one. I really, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, and um, so I'd written, you know, two hundred and fifty or three hundred bad poems, and and I honestly, I don't know what I don't know what happened. I don't know what tripped the switch uh, that said, you know what, I want to stop using line breaks. I want to, I want to start writing in paragraphs. And and I don't I don't know maybe I'd started thinking in paragraphs all of a sudden I don't really know but all of a sudden character became important to me and uh, and sort of plot motion became important to me and I and I just I don't know I started reading more with an eye to looking for tricks that I could steal and and uh, yeah so that that happened my first year that maybe even that first semester end of that first semester in Paris
0: are there any uh, are there any over. are there any books or authors that you can point to. That were kind of like fulcrums for you, you know, like pivot points. That like was there a book oh, that you read or or an author that really got inside your brain and made you, you know, affected your trajectory?
1: Tons, yeah. I mean, constantly, weekly, I, I read something that does that for me, and it continues to happen. And I'm more and more grateful. Honestly, I think I'm more and more grateful every time that it happens because it seems to me that it's perpetually less likely to happen because the more you've read, the less likely something is to strike you as new if that makes any sense. sure. Um, so, you know, for, for, and and I'm, I'm not making, I'm not breaking ground here. I'm discovering things that everyone else already knows about, but you know, when I came across for the first time, uh, Ann Carson four months ago, uh, it blew my mind. And I'm, I, I, to this day, I'm pushing her books on people and, and saying she's the most extraordinary thing to happen in English since ever. And, uh, and, and, and believing in them. I think, I think she's extraordinary. Um, Um, so it, it continues to happen and it continues, you know, she continues to show me things that books can be and ways that language can manifest. and, um, so, you know, I, I'm always, always grateful when that happens, whether it's in, you know, something sort of right down the line between poetry fiction and nonfiction, the way she does it, or, you know, whether it's John William Stoner, you know, a, a much, a much older book that's recently, I think being rediscovered by a whole lot of people. And I was one of them and I'm still kind of in awe of that book. Um, but sorry, were you asking specifically at the, of that time period, whether there was a book that I read that said you should.
0: Yeah, I mean, just like a, a specific to the transition from writing, uh, as you said, terrible poetry to writing terrible short stories, was there an author that influenced that decision, or was it like just more of an organic, intuitive process?
1: I don't have a good answer to that. I don't know. I, I don't think the kinds of books that I was reading changed a whole lot. I mean, as obviously, I was I was reading not obviously, but I was I was reading in in French by then. Um, who was I reading who was it was probably the, the books that people were pushing on me there um, I was reading Pagnol in French I was reading uh, Denise Borian was who was actually the the wife of the department head that I mentioned she's a poet um, so I was reading her um, dang I was reading uh, Gide, I think Palud uh, uh, that has to have been translated but I don't know what it's called like uh, has something to do with malaria. um but due to, the, like, the swamps, does that, does that ring any bells? Anyway, um, The Immoralist. Yeah, a couple of other of his books, you'll know. Um, but, but I yeah, but, like, thinking in, about those books right now, nothing strikes me immediately as something that would have tripped the switch, like I said. What was I reading in English? I was reading Updike um calvino I was reading and he was i mean he was definitely he definitely tripped the switch for me but it but in other senses i don't um you know its showing i get maybe i mean maybe calvino that that's, a, that's an interesting possible answer because i definitely list to whenever anybody asks me you know how did it how did it happen how did you start getting interested in making words into things his name always comes up Hmm. And that was, I'm, I read Invisible Cities for the first time there. So, um, and, and yeah. And so so let's, let's say that. Let's say Calvary.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so hard to zero in on, but like, you know, there are these authors who are stickier than others and books that are stickier right. than others, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Well, so, yeah. Invisible Cities is definitely one of them for me. So Paris for two years, teaching, mm-hmm. living abroad. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you did some traveling in Europe uh, outside of France while you were there. Uh, yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, whenever, whenever I got the chance, I was traveling in France as well. But yeah, whenever I got the chance to to go somewhere else, I did. And a f- funny set of things that happened as well. Yeah, the year that I was at Oxford, um, uh, a girl that I knew from Georgetown that I was very interested in spending more time with uh, was in Croatia on the on the Dalmatian coast, uh, a little town called Marina. And uh, I found out that she was there and we were sort of getting back in touch for the first time after a while. And she invited me to go, you know, hang out and, and see what was going on over there. And so I did. And this is just when stuff was starting to get messy. Uh, this, it was still Yugoslavia at the time and it was just when stuff was starting to get messy and um, and interesting again in the Balkans. And so, by the time I was in France in ninety so this would have been ninety two uh, the war was going on some some really messy things had started happening and the people the friends that i 'd made while I was there visiting this American woman uh, I was still in touch with and so uh, they invited me to come out, even though things you know things were hot but the, by then the the, um, the front lines were stable. And they were, I mean, they were, they were messy, but you could, it could be handled. And so I went uh, back in 92 and then again in 93. And um, that's where I got uh, a lot of the experiences that went into the first book, Nothing in the World.
0: Okay. And so um, when you say you went there, you visited or you actually moved and lived?
1: No, no, no. I just, I went there to visit. It was okay. uh, a couple of months altogether.
0: Okay. So uh, aside from Paris or like what happens after you leave the, the official residence in Paris during your teaching stint there?
1: Oh, my official residence was spectacular. It was, <laughs> it was the first, the first year that I was there, just sorry, this is a little digression, but it's funny. The first year that I was there, uh, I was illegally subletting uh, a room in the apartment of a judge. And that was uh, that was uncomfortable in all kinds of ways. And then uh, the the following year was was totally made up for it. It was one of my colleagues at the university was retiring in order to go spend more time with her father, who was in his 90s and lived down down south. And so she had this, you know, this this immense family apartment that had been their family for generations in the 16th in this really, really nice part of Paris. And uh, so she was just looking for someone who would live there so that it wouldn't, you know, to, to sort of be there so it wouldn't get robbed or so it wouldn't fall apart or whatever. So and I told her that, there was, you know, that I couldn't even afford the utilities in that apartment. And she said that she knew and didn't care. So uh, that was my that was my digs for the second year. Wow.
0: Okay. It was, yeah, it was pretty nice. Uh,
1: so then after I left that official residence, um, like
0: where did I you, went back
1: where, to. Well, sorry, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, where did you go next?
1: After that, I went back to California. My sister got married, and I'd had this plan that uh, I couldn't teach anymore at the same level uh, at the University of Paris. If I wanted to keep teaching there, I was going to have to get a, a master's degree or a PhD, and that just wasn't something I was interested in then, so... Uh, yeah, and so I had this. I was trying to put together this plan to travel. You know, this, the money that I'd saved, I was going to use it to uh, to travel around Africa. I had this one-year uh, sort of continent encircling plan. That wasn't it. wasn't completely put together. There were there were holes in there. There were countries that it was really hard to get visas for from you know the surrounding countries. It was a little messy, but um, that was my plan. But then my sister decided to get married, so I moved back to California. Uh, I was there for her wedding, and then. Uh, taught for a while at a junior college there in town, and then that that was when I headed down to Peru in uh, January of '95.
0: Okay, so what and, what prompted uh, that?
1: Uh just wanting to go look at something new and think about it. <laughs> really, that's that's been like that's been my great motivation for pretty much everything at all times.
0: So, but you I mean, did you have any kind of like a job situation, or were you just like I'm going to Peru and I'm going to figure it out when I get there?
1: well kind of both really i i was hip enough to know that i wanted to be i wanted to, i wanted to show up not as a tourist but as somebody who could you know bitch about having to pay taxes like everybody else so i wanted to have a job getting down there i was not i was not smart enough to realize that you know i knew that the, i knew that the seasons were reversed in the hemispheres, I didn't realize that the academic years were also reversed, and so I sent I sent my resume to a bunch of places at a time when no one was reading resumes, <laughs> and um and just and got completely ignored everywhere except at this one uh, language school in Arequipa down in the south. And so that was where that, you know, I figured, well, okay, I'll go, I'll hang out there for a couple of months as long as it takes me to find uh, university work. And that's how it worked out. And I ended up five months later at a university up in the north uh, in a city called Buda. And that's where I eventually met my wife. And I was there for Uh, five years altogether and then another, another three down in Lima. So that was eight years altogether at that stretch.
0: Okay. See, I've never been to South America. I've never, you know, I have very little like frame of reference for Peru, but, Mm -hmm. um, describe, I mean like what, like what was your life like there? What kind of places were you living? Um, I'm just curious.
1: Sure. Well, let's see. Um, In Arequipa, which is down in the south, and it's just uh, it's fairly high up. I mean, it's high enough up that you can feel it. It's not as high up as as Cusco or some of the other, you know, Titulio, which is up at fourteen thousand feet or whatever. Um, Yeah. No, it's not. It's not quite like that. Um, And uh, but you know what? If I if I say how the elevation of the town, it's going to be wrong. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was it was up enough that you felt it when if you if you tried to jog. and so yeah th- those five months were they were interesting the work wasn't particularly interesting um but uh the people that I was hanging out with were were fun and uh I, and I got to travel a fair bit uh in the south and that I enjoyed that a lot um and I was living the place that I was working they got a they got an apartment for for me and one other teacher there uh, and it was a little weird, like the plastic was still on the sofa and, and the layout was a little bizarre, but, uh, but it was fine, you know, and it was, I mean, it was just a regular apartment. It wasn't, there wasn't anything particularly special about it. It was just a little weird.
0: And, did and you, then, you Did, did um, you
1: show up speaking
0: Spanish fluently?
1: Not fluently, no. I, I skipped over talking telling the story before I skipped over a trip down to Guatemala and Venezuela, uh, Guatemala and El Salvador that I'd taken, uh, in '94, and, and that was five weeks, and I went down there specifically to learn Spanish well enough to read Borges and Llosa and Chabat and a couple of other people um, in Spanish. And that didn't quite work out, but I, you know, I got the bug, and so I had a little bit of Spanish, and I had French already because of the two years in in France.
0: Right. And
1: so uh, it wasn't, it didn't seem to me terribly complicated to. Uh, to get to a position where yeah, I could use spanish um, i even I gave a couple of lectures in Spanish right at the end of that period and and by then i was I was good to go well at least it seemed to me that I was good to go i don 't know what anyone else thought but
0: <laughs> no one no one understood me but, uh, no
1: one understood a word as long <laughs> as they applauded what did i care <laughs> right, right.
0: so uh, and so you're and you 're writing throughout this time like are these your apprentice years uh, i mean you're you 're getting up and i mean how how uh disciplined were you as a fiction writer in this time?
1: Well, yeah, no, def- definitely The Apprentice Years. Um, I wrote, uh, I was writing short stories, none of which had been, were still in Arequipa, right? Yeah, no, I hadn't, I hadn't had anything published yet, but I was, writing, I was writing stories at a fair clip, and I read, um, the very first book that I read in Spanish was a Vargas Llosa novel called, I think in English they call it The Storyteller. El hablador, they call it in Spanish. And uh, it has this uh, this split narrative structure where you've got, you know, a third person uh, narrative happening with this, this, this tribal storyteller in the jungle. And then... Um, He's switching between chapters, right? One chapter is, is following that character, and then the next chapter is a first person narrative following uh, this guy who may or may not be actual friends from college with this guy, that was, with the tribal storyteller who's actually not tribal, and, you know, so we're, we're, we're trying to figure stuff out as we work our way through the novel. And, uh, and that was, that was revolutionary for me too. That was the first time I'd seen that. And I thought, wow, that's a trick that I would like to play with a little bit and see if I can make something interesting happen. And so that was my first novel. I took a story that I'd, um, uh, messed about with quite a bit and it never really worked as a story. It had four parts and, uh, and they weren't, you know, they didn't, they weren't really speaking to each other and, and it, was, it just wasn't an interesting story and all four of the bits suggested other bits. And so that turned into a novel, and I do, I stole it wholesale from So from the structure. I went back and forth between a third-person story about uh, this young Croatian soldier uh, named Josko Ranović and, uh, and a, and a first-person uh, narrator, an American guy who was, ends up trying to uh, track down this soldier because of a couple of things that happened. In the end... Half of the novel was good it was okay anyway. The bits that were following the soldier and the bits that were following the first per- the American were terrible they were they were they were rotten and they were fat and uh, so it took me a long time it took me five or six years to figure out that what I needed to do was just cut out all of the first person stuff, just get rid of the American altogether, which I should have been able to figure out a long time before that because you know I, I, it took me. I every every new draft that I wrote, I changed his job. Like I could never figure out what this guy did for a living, and if you can't figure that out, like there's something really fundamentally wrong with the with the text. And and that never occurred to me. So I'm like, oh, he should be a photographer. Wouldn't that be great? No, 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 no. Let's make him a poet because there's lots of professional poets. Anyway, um, so yeah, so that ended up being the first book when I got rid of the bad half and and toned down the. uh, a decent half, and that ended up being the novella that got published.
0: Okay, so and and you're still living in Peru. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah.
1: You, throughout all of that. Yeah.
0: And then you met your wife. Uh, where in in what's in
1: class year? one day.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's that old story, which I, I get. You know, in 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 theory, I'm completely against that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. But well, so you were her teacher. Yes. Oh, okay. But, I mean, this is college, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's college, and she's smarter than I am, so...
0: Yeah. And so then um, you guys, like, she graduates, starts working in the diplomatic uh, realm. You guys continue to live, what, in, then you guys move to Lima?
1: Yeah, she actually moved there before I did. She moved there after graduating because you have to do... Uh, you, when you when you go into the diplomatic corps there 's a series of exams and once you pass them you 're into the academy where you study for two years and do a thesis it 's basically a government run master's in i r or something like that and uh, so she did that and then uh, after that you have to work you work there for another year for the foreign ministry uh, there in lima and then after that you're you 're a center rod
0: okay so by this point you 're um... You're published. You have the novella published. Like, did you have any um, like real struggles or like long? I mean, how many? How much rejection did you have to endure? Uh, were you submitting stories and having them sent back with form letters or like what?
1: Yeah, I had. I mean, I I I, I went by the book. I had a hundred and I used to know 120, 125 rejections uh, before my first story stuck. So yeah, plenty of plenty of rejection, plenty of. Uh, postage stamps uh, wasted plenty of. Uh, I wasn't savvy in the, in the word that that started being bandied about a year or two ago, uh, <laughs> after that Deborah Treisman interview. Uh, yeah, I wasn't. I didn't know what I was doing. It took it took some kind editor at Playboy to tell me that I didn't have to send them two copies of everything. I mean, uh, <laughs> it was that that level of of uh, of ignorance, and. Uh so yeah, it, it took me forever to get a piece a piece published, and then the second one came fairly quickly after that and then and after that I, I just i I hit a point where I figured out that I needed to start uh building endings for stories and I think you know there were things that I was doing right all along and things that I was doing wrong until I realized that I was doing them wrong and and uh once I got the big ones sort of figured out. Uh, the story started you know they 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 started getting picked up more regularly
0: okay so what was the the big thing you said that was was building endings for your stories
1: yeah i was always taking the the first available exit i would see i would see way out of the story which usually involved killing everyone in it and i would <laughs> go ahead and do that and uh it turns out that, that that's that's a hard way to build a career by killing all your characters
0: so okay, so take us through. I mean, I know each story is different, and you mm-hmm. know, but I mean, th- there has to be some similarities in terms of how you work through, uh, you know, a short story. Like, take us through the process. Like, how many drafts? Like, how you know how uh, permissive are you on those early drafts in terms of um, trying to get it to close to its final form? You know, etc.
1: Well. I, I do tons and tons and tons of drafts. I do. I mean, you know, there were. I definitely have stories that, when they finally got published, were on their twenty or twenty-fifth draft, um, and and with with pretty substantial changes in all of them. Meaning that the first version was awful. You know, the first version was completely useless, and then little by little they got better. And so, yeah, no, it takes me. It takes me a very long time. I think I've only had one story in my life come out fully formed or nearly fully formed. And that freak that experience of writing a story that was already right freaked me out so bad that I just put it in a drawer. <laughs> I didn't I didn't send it out. I didn't want I didn't want to think about it. It really it freaked me out a little bit.
0: What story was that?
1: Uh, it was called the workshop. McSweeney's published it.
0: Uh, so, uh, so okay, so how long, long, it, how long does how long does a story typically take you? Like you know, like if you're um, working through twenty-five drafts. Like, does your typical story take six months to finish, or you do you focus on one until it's done and just keep going over it and over it and over it, or do you do you shelve it and then work on another story and then come back to it? Like,
1: yeah, I switch. I switch between drafts.
0: Okay.
1: I'll get I'll get a story as good as I can get it, and then send it. And I I feel like I'm talking in the present tense about something that isn't quite the way I work anymore, just because I haven't been working on short stories in a really long time. But when I go back to them, uh, this is I, I assume that it'll be it'll be how it'll work for me again. I I get a story as good as I can, and you know once I think it's actually ready to be seen, I'll send it out, and then I won't think about it at all. I you know it's it's out, and I don't have to think about it, and I can work on something else. And then at you know at some point it either gets picked up or has accumulated you know rejections from everyone that I sent it to the first time and and I'll have a look at it again and do another draft and and send that out or or realize that the story is fundamentally flawed in some way and throw it away you know that happens too
0: so how how like how do you work are you an everyday like up at the crack of dawn writer do you work more sporadically than that
1: no i I'm working every day certainly um yeah, i'm lucky i'm lucky i'm I'm here at the house and so I get my kids off to school they're you know they're out at the bus stop i walk them out at uh seven whatever and uh get my wife to the to the metro and then from then on you know i've got i've got certain other things that I have to take care of, but for the most part i can I can just sit down and and get
0: to work. Like weekends included, or do you do you take the weekends off?
1: Oh, I work weekends when I'm when I'm behind uh, when I, when I'm you know when I realize that there's a deadline coming up that I'm not going to make. Um, but I kind of I feel slightly guilty about doing that, and you know avoid it when I can. But I also I mean I'm happier working. I, working is working is my version of play. So and everyone everyone in the house knows that, and so they they you know my kids and, and my wife they all try to give me at least a couple of hours and, and I'll usually, you know, unless it's been a late night, I'll, uh, I'll be up at five or five thirty or six and, and get a couple hours in before anybody else is, is out, out and about anyway. So,
0: Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, but that's that's a good time, man. Those quiet hours, I, I love. It's that. nice, right? Yeah, me it, too. It's always a better day for me, anyway. I get more done when I get up early, and then, like when I don't, things I feel like things start to slip away. That's
1: right. That's right. It, it definitely happens.
0: So, and so you said you haven't been working on short stories in a while. So you're working on um, a, a novel at present. Is that? What? No,
1: I've actually I've got a. Translate well. Yeah, I'm working on a novel, but it's somebody else's. I'm translating a uh, terrific first novel by a young Argentinian writer uh, for for Random House, and uh, so that's that's the big project. That's what I've got to get done now, and it's 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 going well. It's a it's a cool project.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. Translation is uh, an art, in, uh, you know, uh, in and of itself. And when I read books in translation uh, in English. Uh, I'm, you, you become, especially if you've read a lot of them, you become aware of when you're in the hands of a good translator and when you're not. And so, like, talk a little bit about that process because, you know, you, you're making. I mean, you're obviously constrained, uh, or uh, you know, you, you're obviously trying to hew as closely as possible to uh, the words and intentions of the author. But there are many moments, I'm sure, where you've got to make decisions. You know, like aesthetic decisions about. Uh, word choice, and I mean, I, talk about that because I've, I'm not, I'm not bilingual, or at least not bilingual enough to ever be in the position to translate. But I'm fascinated by how you do that.
1: It's it's a neat process. It is. Um, you your your end responsibility is just like with anything else, it's to the reader, right? So they need to have an experience of this novel that is gratifying, or this, whatever the text happens to be, that is gratifying and full in their own language. Um, and there are, you know, there are different schools of thought amongst different translators. There's a lot of theory that goes into this. But, um, but I believe that really strongly, that the final, just like it was for the author in their original language, my final responsibility is to the reader in english and so that's what that's that that has to be the end goal at all times um but that said there yeah you're you're constantly making these little tiny decisions you know uh, whatever tens of decisions a minute about um about word choice and about what something actually means and about how many uh, of the multiple meanings of a given phrase, you're going to be able to pull off in English and you beat your head against the table every time there's like a language joke because that, those are impossible. And, um, you know, puns are impossible. Yeah, they're not impossible, but they're hard. Um, so, yeah, there's there are all these different you're 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 building little machines and you hope that the machine looks like the original machine and sounds like the original machine and gets you to the same place.
0: Do you think it's possible to improve a novel in translation?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, start with a bad one. It's easy.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I guess so. I mean, because I, I sometimes wonder about that when I'm reading like a really good translation. Uh, I want, Especially if the book is older, because I, what I found, too, is that like if you read a book in translation that was published, say, 75 years ago, and if I were able to read the original in its native tongue... Uh, I wonder if it would feel more dated, do you know what i 'm saying, or if it would feel uh, sure. more removed from me and by you know by virtue of having a, a translator work on it uh in more recent times, you get a more contemporary feel you know
1: well that's that 's certainly possible um i 'm not sure it 's inevitable it might be it might be but it 's definitely possible um that but that 's a decision that that the author is making to bring it forward into more contemporary language mm. um you know, there are, weird things can happen. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, I have it here, it's a Javier Maria's novel called, uh, I think in English, it's Tomorrow in the Battle, Think In Me, On Me. I, I haven't seen the English, but it's either in me or on me. It's, it's slightly odd phrasing. And I thought, well, that's weird, because in the Spanish, it's, la and that's, that's really natural language, right? That's, uh, there's nothing odd about that at all. Uh, but, of course, it turns out, not of course, it turns out that that's uh, from Richard III. The phrase is from Richard III. And so the reason that it seems weird in English is that you're sort of translating back in time. Which for, I mean, if you're just looking at the title, it doesn't, there's there's no obvious, unless you happen to know the phrase from the Shakespeare play in Spanish, uh, you know, that you're not going to make that connection immediately, I don't think, at least I wouldn't. And so you've got this, you've got this weird, uh, you know, 400 year skip back that you're not ready for and that you don't have context for if you're just looking at the cover of the novel. And so there's, there's weird things like that that can happen. But most translators, I think, will translate forward at least a little bit because, you know, you're, you're throwing somebody out of the, every time you use a stilted phrasing, every time you use a, an 18th century phrasing or whatever, you're, you're throwing somebody out of the book. And so you, I don't know, you, you, you try to find the happy medium for the most part in terms of all of these decisions. That's, but that's, yeah, that's definitely one kind.
0: Okay. Well, uh, before I let you go, are you related to Ken Kesey in any way? Distantly. You're from Northern California. He's from Oregon. I'm thinking there might be family bloodline similarities.
1: You know, if you are, uh, an attractive female undergraduate in 1986, then the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Given, given the thought that that's no longer the case, that like none of those none of those circumstances um, are the are the case anymore. Sadly, I'm not. Not that I know of, anyway. It's a it's a fairly uncommon. Uh, spelling of, of, a last name. And so it's a little weird that there's, that there's no connection, but you know, I, people in my family are working on genealogy and they haven't been able to find any connection. And so for now I have to say, sadly not.
0: Okay. And then where to next? I mean, are you, you guys are in Maryland, but I'm assuming mm. that like, there'll be another move based on, uh, you know, if, if the past is any indication. So do you have an idea of where you're going to go next or will it be a mm. surprise?
1: No, you really don't. Well, it's not a it's not a surprise in the sense that you, uh, given the way that the, the Peruvian foreign ministry works, you get to uh, to put forward the you know three places that you would really like to go, and they do their absolute best to make sure that you uh, you know to offer you a posting at one of those three places. And you know there's there's this constant ranking and re-ranking that's going on in terms of the yearly exams that they take, and you know your if any degrees that you've earned in the meantime, and all these other things. So uh, the higher rank you are at any given moment the more likely you are to get uh, the posting that you want
0: so give me some give, so, give me three what what's like where would you guys like to go what what's, what uh, seems I, fascinating
1: that is that's an awesome question and I don't have a particularly great answer for it except to say I like I like crossroads I like places that are uh, that are where things come together and so a country like Turkey interests me uh, a country like Egypt or uh, Morocco interests me. Uh, of course, you're limited by a couple of things. You're limited to uh, you're limited by where there happen to be Peruvian embassies or consulates. You can't go anywhere else. Um, and you it has to be a place that needs someone at your at uh, my wife's uh, rank at the time. And so you know all of these things are coming into play. And you know who's the boss there and and. Uh, what the political situation is, and you know, there are, there, are, there are a lot of different things to consider. But so yeah, so um, okay. Turkey would be interesting. I'd love to get back to Asia, maybe Thailand, um, if we're down in if we're down in South America, Argentina probably. Um, but you know, again, this is just this is just off the top of my head right now, and doesn't have a a whole lot of bearing on you know the the list that we actually send in when it comes time in seven years.
0: Oh, okay, seven years. Well, yeah. Well, I'll be interested to see. I'm sure I'll be tracking you somehow online. I'll find out about it um, either, you know, uh, either there or somewhere else. But it's been really fun talking with you, and uh, I wish you luck uh, on the translation, and we'll be interested to see uh, what you come up with down the road.
1: Brad, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having
0: me on. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Roy Kesey. Go get his story collection. It's called Any Deadly Thing, and it is available now from DeZank Books. You can find Roy online at RoyKesey.com. He's also on the Twitter, where his handle is at RoyKesey. And uh, don't forget to check out DeZank Books, either. You can find them at DeZankBooks.org. Thank you once again to today's sponsor, Squarespace. If you need a website or you want to improve your existing website, just go to squarespace.com, check it out. And uh, don't forget to enter the offer code OTHER8 uh, for 10% off. That's squarespace.com. Do that, you guys. Uh, Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device it's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content in the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. If you haven't done so already, the app itself is free. Uh, okay. Closing thoughts. Uh, I can't believe the, uh, the rapping listener, <laughs> Ben, uh, I can't believe he busted a rhyme just for me. It's going to take me a while to process that. It's a lot to process. The, uh, this, this rhyme busting situation. Please remember that Eli Wiesel's advance against royalties for the first American edition of night was $100. And that Stephen Crane wrote the red badge of courage in 10 days. That is all for now. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Roy Keezy Uh, go get his book. I will be back on Sunday with another episode of this program for your consumption, another conversation with another writerly human being in the meantime, uh, please, uh, relax and enjoy yourselves. Uh, please be sure to enjoy some silence every now and again, silence is healthy. Uh, in fact, we can enjoy some right now. Should we do that? Let's try that. Does this feel weird? Are you guys uh, feeling weird about this?